everybody thanks for coming to episode 30 um i do want to point out if you see jared and i wearing the same clothes i think jared actually switched his jacket I switched. Up a little bit. i did not so i promise i'm not wearing the same clothes you'll see this in episode 29 with olaf uh this is the same day so 29 and 30 will record on the same day so i promise uh i'm not i have multiple multiple uh Outfit. You know, outfits. You just outfits. invalidated Jared's whole outfit switch, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. You protected uh, yourself at my expense. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on. Um, today we have a really cool guest with us. We have Max, who is the CEO and co-founder of uh, Lima Charlie. Max, if you would please introduce yourself. Hey, uh, super happy to be here. Uh, yeah, uh, CEO, co-founder. Very, very technical person. I've kind of done, started into the government side of things, um, development operations, and then I did CrowdStrike and Google and Chronicle and then started in the Oh, Very cool. What'd you do at CrowdStrike? I was architecting the early security operations center. Uh, so very I was cool. around employee 100. So like really early on. Very, very cool. Cool. So tell us about Lima Charlie. What is... What is Lima Charlie for those that, that those that don't know? Sure. So Lima Charlie is a very very different type of uh, of security product. Um, essentially, what we are doing is we're taking a lot of inspiration from something like AWS, and we're applying that to the cybersecurity kind of tool set. So the the two core things that we that we kind of the the, the core side of that that spin is. The same way you interact with AWS, everything self-serve, multi-tenant scale up, scale down, per usage, API first, OEM friendly, like all that like AWS-ness um, is how we work across every single thing we do. And then the second part, which is uh, more exciting, is the products that we build, kind of like AWS, right, to have IT or tech primitives, um, we do that for cybersecurity. So that means... Uh, we started like with EDR and it means, you know, you get EDR as a primitive. Um, so it, think of it like a big, you know, bucket of Lego blocks um, and how you assemble them, how you put them together, how you build the types of pipelines or security products or posture. It's kind of up to you. So we're kind of like AWS of cybersecurity. I hate kind of saying it that way, but, you know, that, that's sort of what we're, uh, what we're doing. Cool. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I'm always really interested in is a lot of times when when people create new companies especially product companies it kind of comes out of this uh almost like adventure to where you you are surveying the the world and what's available to you and you notice that there's maybe either you think people are doing things wrong or maybe there's something that you want to do differently or maybe there's some sort of conflict that you encounter that you're trying to overcome and i'm kind of curious uh when you when you first started lima charlie what were what were the types of uh, what's kind of your background for what caused you to be inspired to create your own company or your own product? Yeah, totally. Uh, so my background, because I, I started intelligence and like, you, if you, you know, string the kind of the, the names of the companies where I was at, yep. the trend is uh, I was in really great cybersecurity teams, right? Yep. Like fundamentally, it's not like, you know, I worked for like some grocery store and, you know, the, the, the part-time IT guy trying to do everything that, that really wasn't it. And so um, I was kind of, uh, you know, pretty deep in security for a long time through those teams. And by the time that it kind of got to like, you know, Google and Chronicle there before starting it, it was really the, the, the full realization that 
I, I, you know, I, you know, I don't want to sound cocky, but like I knew what I was doing. Like a lot of people know in cybersecurity what you what, what they're doing, like, mm-hmm. like you guys. And looking at the tools on the market, like what the vendors were pushing, I was not at all the target like audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like every, okay. all the vendors were like, hey, you know, I have this rocket protects you from bears. Like I have this thing, it protects you from cyber attacks. And like, okay, how? Eh, don't worry about it. It just does, right? Mm-hmm. And so even like, even at Google, like we would be reviewing products and it was just frustration of like, yeah, that, you're trying to sell me this cool widget, but it does three things through this GUI. And like, I know how to, you know, like look for some type of malware through handles and memory. Sure. And no, nobody's even like allowing me to do any of that stuff. Okay. Or okay. I know how to like build, you know, I have this idea of a detection, right? Like it's pretty topical. Of, like, I think if we take this and that and like, you know, pivot around that, we might find some really, really good stuff. And it was like, no, sorry. You can look for a hash if you want. It's like, cool. That. I'm trying to go a bit farther than that. Right? Sure, sure. Yep. Okay, so there, there's two things that I'm picking up from that. One is um, you you probably felt a little bit constrained in your ability to articulate your idea technically, right? So it's like I always I always talk about how there's there's this issue to where you have this idea in your head, and then there's your ability to put it into words. So like if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're trying to tell a story about something and you're like you know, you tell it and you're not getting the reaction that you, that you want to, maybe you like tell it again with some more detail and then you like, you're still not getting the reaction. And then you say something like you just had to be there. Right. That's like the situation where what's in your head is very difficult to express to the, to the audience, whoever the the person or the audience. And I think that there's like a similar issue that we have in cybersecurity where sometimes we have things in our head about like, Hey, it'd be really cool if I could take this event and then get this other event, or even just like something as simple as, I remember we were doing a, a project with services and we were like, one thing that might be interesting to look at is if the service name is randomly generated, right? It's very easy for us to say, hey, if the service name is randomly generated, that should be an indicator. What's really, really hard, actually, apparently it's an unsolved problem in, in like machine learning, is how to tell if a string is randomly generated. It's like impossible. And so it's one thing to think the thing, but it's another thing to be able to express it. Totally. And I think the, the, like, it's sort of the, the next step in that yeah. thing uh, is also super critical, which is, you know, okay, we, we thought about this idea. Like, I think this could be interesting. What's the cost of actually doing that, right? Mm. If the cost to me means, well, I got to go and deploy some file beats on this and that to get this new event thing and I set up a new ELK cluster. And then, like, look, it's an idea. It's going to take me a week to try it. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. And so for me, I I, I had always uh, put a huge emphasis whenever I kind of built things in, in in my career in different places. In it needs to be really, really, really fast to get to kind of prove out or or, or disprove your idea. Sure. Because that's when you go like, oh, I have this crazy idea. It's going to take me an hour. Yeah, do it. Go on. Right. And does it work? Then move on. But that's how you get to these like really, really interesting predictions. Yeah. 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 I think um, one thing to your point, too, it's really hard. So whenever we're doing research for whatever it may is, for whatever it may be, um, 
like we talked about this on the last podcast, you know, like a lot of the things we let uh, the limitations of other processes within a detection response limit the research we're doing. And that's probably one of the most hindering things that I've seen in research, right? Whenever we're trying to come up with a technical solution and we say, this is not, I'm, I'm not even going to go down this route because this isn't practical for my current solution. Mm. I'm of the mindset that <clears throat> you are limiting the, the, the further advancement of practicality at that point, right? Because you're, you, you aren't like evolving past that. So find out what's technically possible, figure out what you might be able to implement today, then figure out how you might be able to implement what you found tomorrow. And I think that is a really, really important piece of the research that often just gets dropped because people just kind of say, oh, this isn't practical right now. You know what I mean? So I find I find like practical is like my trigger word uh, is, because yeah. I, I like to like I like to solve problems like philosophically first and then figure out how to how to practically implement it. Right. So that and that way, like I know what good looks like and I could I could pull back based on actual constraints that I face. And one of the reasons I don't like practical is like when people are like, oh, you know, this, I just, uh, that's not practical. It's like, what exactly do people actually mean? And there's, there's kind of like, I don't know, I've, I've come up with four different things that practical can correlate to. So yep. um, one is temporal, right? So it's like, when I first started my career, we didn't even have EDRs weren't a thing, right? We had Windows event logs. And were computers we were even a thing back in your day? Jim? No, yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, typewriters. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Have you seen that TikTok of the kid that like uh, laptops were banned in, in his like auditorium? Oh and yeah, he yeah. A typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. To be honest, yeah. though, with your personality, Jared, you would do that. that would I would do honestly. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I might be too lazy to do that, but I would. I would think. <laughs> I would think of it. The um, okay. So temporally, it's like something that wasn't that people people would have said that's impractical ten years ago is completely pr like is trivial today, right? And so like. You don't want to limit. You don't want to limit what you what you can think of based on what you could do right this second, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's then there's like uh, maybe skill set or experience, right? And so what's practical for me might not be practical for somebody else because maybe they don't they don't understand the operating system in the same way that I do. Maybe they can't they don't have the programming experience because programming kind of is a magical thing that allows you to expand practical practic practicability practicability. I don't know. And I mean, when you're talking about, oh, well, like one of the cool things is that we made it really easy for people to stand up this pipeline. That's programming, right? So like something that would have taken people hours, weeks, you know, however long, now you could do trivially to where it just is magic, right? Um, there's also potentially, let's see, I said, okay, temporal skill, maybe there's technology, right? So we, we consult with a bunch of different companies. And for we have some companies that if you tell them to do this correlation, they could do that no problem and it's not hard. And then there's other companies that literally don't have the technological capability to correlate two events together because yeah. they have a sim that doesn't have you know the ability to do correlation and then they, they maybe don't have like a sore appliance to be able to do something like that. And so the, what's practical, there's one more that I can't think of, but what's practical is this weird thing to where it's not exactly clear when people say that's not practical, whether they mean it's not practical for anyone or whether it's not practical for me. And then why is it not practical? Is it not yeah. like technically feasible or is it just something that you don't have the the background to be able to actually implement? And so that that one's like tough. And I always think you have to kind of Socratic method people down to figure out like what are what are you actually worried about here?
Yeah, it's like almost like when they say practicality, it's like, what can I implement right here and now? And although that's a valid question, whenever like an output of research should be to like help identify what we can implement here and now, right? And it, the reason why I bring this up is, Max, it sounds like part of the reason why you started, you like co-founded your business was because you got maybe got tired of the limitations being put on you potentially. Um, and you wanted to showcase how those things could be achieved. And I think that's the, I think that's how um, we evolve in detection capabilities. Right. Um, and I think one thing, whenever people say practicality around back is like, what can I implement today? And again, that's an important piece of research. It's like, what can I do today? However, I think a big piece of research, almost like the majority chunk of it should be, what can I do tomorrow, six months, a year with this data? How can I, how can I do more and more and more with it? Um, it's like, it's like if you go look at the threat intelligence provider that, you know, a lot of uh, EDRs use today. When EDRs first came out, that wasn't a thing. People weren't even using ETW really, right? But it's like, why did that? Well, it became because they weren't seeing everything. And so I think the only way which we evolve practicality or how do I implement today is if we try to technically solve those really hard questions. And I think there's a there's sort of a, a common thread as well in, in all the things that you mentioned, <clears throat> which is practicality and uh, and longevity, I guess maybe the term would be, where like, hey, can I do this? You know, yes, I, I can do this in an Excel spreadsheet with a dump of data from like Splunk. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one way to do it, but my that, that's like my my personal like take is sure. if you need to do this manually if if somebody needs to remember to go and spend in time to do this the value of this potential detection just drops way down because people are busy it just doesn't happen right so it's got to be something that you can test it say like you know no false positive okay cool Put it somewhere, it, it's running somewhere, don't have to ever think about it again. And then maybe in a year, that weird detection trips. And now this is that's the time when you actually find, you know, the, the high value thing. Yeah. yeah. I actually this is uh this is gonna be a spicy take because I know this means a lot of things. When I first started in the Air Force, I was on the Air Force hunt team, like threat hunting team. Um, and like that was I would say like the the uh the NSA started this hunting concept through a group called ANO. And then it, it quickly matriculated to to the Air Force. So we were like probably some of the first people to do uh, threat hunting. I know like uh, I think it was GE, General Electric also had a pretty robust threat hunting team on the commercial side. But the Air Force was pretty early in the game. Um, and as I've seen the concept of threat hunting kind of evolve, I've and how I've seen it implemented commercially at different organizations, I find that it it falls into that category that you just expressed, which is I think scalability or repeatability or something like that, which is um, a lot of people will say, oh, well, threat hunting is kind of like this ad hoc thing to where we look for threats that bypass our automated defenses. But the reality is, is that if you don't integrate that back into your system, right? Mm -hmm. So like detection is systematic. It has to be systematic. It has to be something that repeats, right? And like your job is to make sure like to feed it, feed and care for it to make sure that it's a well-oiled machine, but it has to be a machine. It can't just be this thing that's ad hoc, right? It, like over the long run, maybe in the short term, you can make it ad hoc, but you can't be ad hoc over the long run. Um, and so the threat hunting is is probably fine as a, as a sub process, but it always has to be forward looking into how do I integrate 
this into into the the long running program, right? Or the overall system. Otherwise, eventually, like imagine, like threat hunting is a it's non manual, and so it's resource intensive, right? Human resource intensive, and so I I like let's say I'm the threat hunter. I may have something that I'm focused on, and I'm responsible for checking that daily or weekly or whatever. I only have so much capacity for hunts, right? And what happens is over time, like the first hunt that I do, that's fine, right? Because I'm only doing one thing. But over time, they'll start to stack up and they fill up my capacity. And the the options eventually become either stop doing that thing, which maybe there's a case where I determine that that thing's not worth doing based on my experience with it. But that's not always, that's probably not always going to be the case. Or, um, you know, I have to pass it off into some to somebody else, right? And so threat hunting eventually must feedback into the system yes. um, otherwise otherwise you're just going to stop doing something or or you're not going to add new things to the stack 100% and i would i would even extend that uh, and i'll i'll use a counter example okay <laughs> uh, to so i would extend that to threat intelligence uh, i a long time ago I used to be at a place that had a great threat intel team and the output they they truly were like amazing but the output was Something like daily, uh, I forget it was a PDF or a Word document. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, here, here's a, a narrated thing about like, hey, stuff you should care about. And I think in the same way as with threat hunting, if your threat intel is not machine to machine, like, it, you know, if it's mm-hmm. not entirely automated in your pipeline, I don't really want to. I don't really want to know about it because I can't like, I, yeah, I can't look for your IOC every day manually by launching a query, right? Like sure, sure. the scale. Sure. Yeah. Intel, man. Hold on. Let me think. Johnny, says. Johnny has to think about how to be diplomatic and whatever he's, I don't even know what it's about to be, but <laughs> well, it's about, it's about threat intelligence. So like, okay. So threat Intel. So you took, you were talking about having, being on a really good threat Intel team. I wonder if we can, pivot into that and could you walk through like your experience max and like what makes a good intel team and how that feeds and uh helps feed into detection and help how it's like supposed to amplify capabilities yes so uh, to clarify i wasn't under threat intel team okay okay. um like you know like fully open sort of the closest that i that i've ever been uh was back in the government i i can relate Jared, to when you were talking about the, the Air Force, yep. um, the counter CNE team uh, in, in the government and starting that and uh, getting a lot of threat intel that way. So I, for me, I've always been on the consuming side. Got it. it. Um, and uh, and I mean, I mean, the, I would threat intel has changed like day and night since back in the day. Like what you see now in the private sector, right? What you can purchase as a subscription would have made like people freak out, uh, you know, 20 years ago, even yep. in government. Um, so I, 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 to me, yeah, I look at it from, from the consumption and uh, to me, the critical aspect, and it, it kind of goes back for a circle to a bit of the beginning of our discussion, which is uh, I think there's long-term strategic threat intel. Right, which is is useful. It, it, it's I see it kind of like a, a, a vulnerability research. Right, it, look, yeah. it's not something that's practical day to day, but it's very important in strategic long term. And then there's the short, like short term or like tip off. Right, mm. hey, 
somebody is attacking XYZ and they are targeting using this domain and like, you know, doing these things. And that bit is where you want to be able to have that automated, like from my perspective. Yep. And the, the part that's full circle is, well, what's that, like, what's this, uh, you know, what's the spectrum of threat intel that we can get fully animated? Mm, like yeah. somebody reversing a, 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 a malware, like the, the explanation of how they structure their, their crypto routines. No. Okay. We can't automate that. Like IOCs. Yeah. It's super easy. So how do we, how do we creep more and more towards like bigger coverage of like, they're using this handle. Okay. Like that's a bit more complex than an I like a you know hash. Mm. If we can have that in our automated pipeline, yeah, this now you're really, you know, you're cooking with gas. Yeah. The, re- the, the reason why I ask is, you know, that was a really good answer. I so let me preface to anybody who's listening. I don't hate threat intel and I don't hate threat intel teams, but I do have I do have my criticisms. And that is the following. <clears throat> I think every process within DNR should feed into detection and the sock at some point the output should be going into the, one of two of those things that's either creating new detections validating old detections generating new ideas or to limit true we can have for detections and then ultimately getting that to the sock that is that's kind of my you know blanket statement for that the output that intel i have seen now it's not all teams i haven't worked with like intel teams from like crowdstrike seems pretty good mandiant seems pretty good i've never worked in uh, government, right? So government sounds like they have a lot of nifty ways to kind of um, look into Intel. But from um, what what I what I have seen is the output of Intel to be quite poor. And what I mean is, I see a lot of hey, we see Qbot is now interfacing with Word documents and dropping an MSI. Okay. What am I supposed to do with that? So it's like, okay, so it's like, well, how do you know it's Qbot? One, first of all, like, I think there's this attribution piece between this action and some malware actor that it's really hard to make a connection to. And people in our sector, do we really have the appropriate tools to say so? No. It's also malware's job to try to impersonate other malware or other actors. So it's like, if you really know what you're doing, you would you would probably know that. Another piece that I see often is just like the constant posting on Twitter of, oh my gosh, Emoted is now messing with, you know, WMI. And it's like, again, what, how, what am I supposed to do with that? And so where I see Intel can shine and where I have seen it shine is a thorough investigation, probably a a thorough analysis on, you know, today's activities and what like people are releasing validating the concerns or the attack path of whatever is happening and picking out maybe the differences between what that sequence of operations is doing with what our current detection coverage is and then trying to interface that with the research team saying, hey, could you dive deeper into this? Or, um, for instance, like we're looking at like, you know, our code is looking for code execution, but we're for some reason like, you know, you know, um, not we're uh, filtering out uh, MS builds. Why are we doing that? Can we get the research team to maybe dive into that and figure out, is there a way to perform code execution with MS build, right? Or things like that. that's where I think it really could shine. And that educational piece, I just haven't seen that a bunch. I, I think that that's a, I, I don't actually think that that's necessarily a threat intel only problem in the sense mm-hmm. that 
I don't think that even most of the consumers of threat intel understand how we perceive things in the site, like in the cyber environment. Yeah. Right. So, you know, in the human environment, we know that we have five senses, right? And we we have diff- there's different types of signal that that are associated with the different sensory organs. So, like our eyes see photons, right? And our ears, you know, capture I don't know uh, radio wave, I don't know sound waves, I guess, and so on and so forth, right? So there's different different types of signal, and we have different sense sensors that can pick that up, right? And so the question would be, like, our our eyes don't work in the cyber environment. You can't see the cyber environment in the same way you see the physical biological world. And so then the question is, is how like what are our sensors, and what types of signal are they picking up? And then how do we, I like to say, our conception should mirror our perception, yep. right? So yeah, how yeah. we think about the problem, should we should align it to how we perceive the problem, how we perceive the world, right? And so the way that I think that we perceive the world is like, for instance, the EDR is an example of a sensor that we use. So there's network sensors as well. There's all kinds of different sensors. And we're able to use those sensors to perceive some type of signal. And the type of signal that EDR are most commonly associated with are those basically those handles that you're talking about. So I would say that those are a handle is basically a connection to a securable object. So when an application interacts with a securable object, like a process or a named pipe or a file or whatever, the 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 handle is the interaction. And then you say, okay, well I want to interact with a process. So I open a handle to it. And then I want to read the memory of that process and that would be an action. And that combination of an action taken against a securable object is an operation. And that's what we see. Yep. So then, the, like, first we need all of, we need detection people to understand that. And I don't think that we I don't think we have a good yeah, grasp of that as a community. But then we need threat intel to talk to us in the in that context. Yeah, that's right. Works. So it's like, yeah. hey, you know, how much do I actually care about this piece of information? Because that's not actually what I'm seeing. I want you to talk to me in the context of what I see. Which are things like those operations, right? A process, process open event, right? Or a process read event, or a file write event. Those are all actions taken against securable objects. And so, can we start talking about that? Yeah, um, I agree with you. And I think like there's a big educational piece too, where it's like, how do we get that type of terminology out there in the world to like kind of start talking? Because we see so for, okay this is a really good example so when i say threat hunting what does that mean it probably means something different to all three of us right we need to have some type of standard by which we all talk so that whenever we communicate input output we're all on the same page we're all on the same level of understanding so like i think what you just brought up jared is a good point intel speaks potentially in one different language than detection and vice versa Research speaks in a different language as well than all those other two. So how do we get everybody on the same the same field of, of communication? It, it just the, the thing that pops into my mind is like it's a total, you know, uh, utopian kind of idea, perhaps. But um, what this feels a little bit like is, you know, how we have. Uh, like, let's say we have Sigma, right? Uh, or or you have MISP, right? Like, I'd say like, you know, MISP for like simple IOCs. Then we have Sigma where it's like, okay, it's still kind of around IOCs, but we're formalizing 
how we talk across yep. the board. Yep. And what we're talking about feels like, could we get to a point someday where we can extend um, this formalization into, uh, you know, threat intel and like reverse engineering um, so that as a reverse engineer, you know, if I can build my re- my report on this piece of malware and codify like, yes, you know, it opens a handle by doing this and that and, and you know, it does these things that that is standardized and then can eventually be translated, you know, That's all right. the way down the stack into right. all of the observables. So one one major issue that Johnny alluded to, and I think is probably the issue that's holding us back on your point as well, Max, is uh, we have a tendency to speak in abstractions. So threat hunting is an abstraction. Kerberosting is an abstraction, right? So like, I, I like another another story. I remember I was at um, Cyberflag, which is like a big U.S. Cybercom exercise when I was in the Air Force, and they invited people from all the different services to come together, and you face the red team, and it's a a gigantic exercise. And when we were there, I remember one day the white cell, which is like the referees or like the people that are in charge of trying to coordinate the exercise, one of the guys came in and said, hey, the red team has a golden ticket. And this was like right when golden tickets were first a thing. And and then he said, what are you guys going to do about it? And we're like, we're going to we're going to go and find that golden ticket. And then he walked away and then we all looked at each other and we're like, what the hell is a golden ticket? Anybody know what a golden ticket is? And so the, the problem was, is that the conception that we had was that this layer that was so far above our understanding that we can't even act because you can't detect something that you don't understand what it is or you can't even articulate it. And so then like, you know, now I know that a golden ticket is a forged Kerberos ticket grain. I didn't even know that a golden ticket was a Kerberos thing. I probably didn't even know what Kerberos was at the time, to be honest. Like I knew probably... I, I took Security Plus, so I had heard of what Kerberos was, but I didn't know what it was. You know what I mean? Um, and so I heard that, and then it was like, what's that? And later on, years later, probably, I, I learned that golden tickets were forged Kerberos ticket grain tickets. And then it's like, okay, well, what's a ticket grain ticket? I might not even know what that is. And so you got to dig a, a level deeper. And it's like, okay, well, that's you know this thing that basically proves your authentication to the domain or whatever. And if you forge it, that means that you've stolen this account password which allows you to then sign tickets and you could sign it and basically say you are whoever you want to be right um and then it's like okay well somebody might say oh if it's a if it's a, a ticket grain ticket then maybe we should just monitor for ticket grain ticket request to the domain controller and it's like no the point is is that the request never happens and you have to you have to understand what a golden ticket is in order to understand that and then that would change how you approach the problem so i think right. I think there's this problem to where we talk about like purple teaming is another good example to where the the conception that most of us have about purple teaming is it's like, well, we get red and blue together and red and blue make purple. And uh, if we do that, then we're going to, you know, hopefully produce better outcomes. And it's like, yeah, I mean, sure, that that's probably true. It's a good it's a good first first level thought. But like, how do we like what are you planning to do together in order the, to achieve that better outcome? The, the problem with that, too, is there's a big. All of us have biases, so if you just bring, are we are we pivoting the purple team? Or no, we, we don't. No, well, we can. Okay, let me just kind of say this one little thing when it sure. comes to like merging ideas. When merging ideas, oftentimes we have biases. So, like, if I'm a blue guy, and then you know, like Max, you're a red guy, and we come together, we talk about something, and we want to call it purple teaming. You're bringing your process of red teaming in, and I'm bringing my process of defense in. However, those things might not merge and might not have good input output. 
right? Because we might be using two levels of different communication. We have two different levels of understanding of whatever it is we're talking about. And then three, it's like, cool. So what do we do with this information now? Right. And that's what I see from like a lot of when it comes to the, when it comes to abstractions too, in a lot of instances, there's a pre-existing bias that comes in there where it's like, for example, uh, like if I were to go to, I don't know, harm joy, Will Schrader and be like, Hey, I want you to do an abstraction on Kerber Osteen. He's looked at Kerber Osteen enough to where he knows all the ins and outs, but then having him follow a framework, he might have bias whenever it comes to that. And so the way he communicates might not fit whatever the framework or the abstraction is because the communications on two levels. So how do we, it's almost like, how do we translate what Will knows about Kerber Osteen to a framework yeah. that could then be fed into the org? Does that make, you see where I'm going with that? It's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think one thing about abstract ideas, abstract ideas are actually useful, right? Because without abstraction, you have unlimited choices and you can't make any decisions or like you can't know anything if you don't use abstraction because every literally everything is different in an infinite number of ways. And so you just can't know anything. And so the, the benefits of that's like in a, from a technical sense. So the benefit of abstraction is that you could start to say, well, these things, even though they're different, they're similar enough for whatever the purpose that I'm trying to achieve, the goal that I'm that I'm pursuing, that I could pretend as if they're the same. Right. The problem is, is that when when you do that across individuals or across organizations, you have to be sure that all the foundational layers are well understood before you get to the abstraction layer. Right. And so what happens, I think we do it inversely to where we start with the abstraction and talk about curb roasting. Yeah. But it, like nobody actually takes the time. The reason why you do abstraction in, in terminology is so that I don't have to say. Kerberos is uh, basically an attack where you have to request a ticket granting service ticket. What a, what a ticket granting service ticket is, is, you know, in Kerberos, there's, you know, different resources on the network. And if you want to authenticate to those via Kerberos, you have to do yada, yada, yada. Like, I don't want to explain that technical detail to every person every time I talk about it. Right. And so what I do is I, I assume that other professionals understand that topic. Right. Which is sometimes a better or worse assumption. And then I just use that abstract idea. But I think I think we use it so broadly that it's not clear that everybody everybody that's in the conversation actually does understand it. And that that severely hinders our ability to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's where that's where things like, you know, like the attack framework, I think are, are they're not solving every problem, but yeah. there's certainly there. It's a start right for us to start. And it. You know, I'll, I'll I'll take a pause and and kind of go and say like, for having been in the industry since like around I don't know 2007, let's say for me, just the fact that we have those discussions is so cool. Oh, sure, um, sure. You know, it, it, I I remember back in the day where everything was like arcane knowledge and like you know guys in the, with hoodies in the basement and nobody really knew anything. It was like hush hush. And now we're actually talking about, okay, at, at the industry level, how do we, you know, formalize things and like move forward? And, and yeah. So as challenging as this all be, uh, this all is, uh, it's kind of nice to like, yeah, it, yeah, it's good. It's I, I, I think one, I think one thing too, when it comes to a lot of these, so it's nice to have like these conversations, these ideas, but it's, it's interesting because Jared and I have talked about this a lot. It's actually kind of like the, I don't know the foundation one of the foundations by which this podcast was built is like 
you have a lot. So like, for example, back in Jared's day, EDR didn't exist, which is crazy for me to believe because I came in industry 2019, right, Jared? So like May 2019. So EDRs were around, but like what? How many years before that EDRs didn't exist? So we're already moving pretty fast, right? We're evolving pretty fast. However, there is still like this and a lot of detection. There's a lot of uh, let's call them potholes. And those potholes are potentially things that slow the evolution down of detection. And those potholes are, I don't want to say people, but who are stuck, people who are very much stuck in the very old way of doing detection. So client side command line detection, uh, very precise indicators, things like that. When if we like, in my opinion, offensive capabilities are like, if we keep going the way we are, is, is pretty far more like is more advanced than detection or defensive capabilities today for example right and so i think if we continue down that path they will continue to have a leg up or have like the stream of gap between us and if we start to evolve detection capabilities we start to identify and start to speak on this communication level of operations sequence of operations you know like if I'm going to be doing like uh, dumping LSAS, I want to get a handle to a process and call it reprocess memory. That's where I want my telemetry from is reprocess memory because that's the current action, right? For which we are going to like be performing or a technique or that specific technique could be performing. And then if I can get that great, feed that to me, that might be relatively noisy, but I have an appropriate technique stack that can handle that. And I'm going to allow detection to do its job. I'm going to allow triage to do its job. We have some type of con contextual uh, piece built into the pipeline where it's starting to look at all these different things. And we have like numbers and thresholds and we can move on. I think that's how we evolve. However, like I'm not I'm not shitting on Sigma by no means, but it's like Sigma is very precise, very. Um, it's very much like how do we limit false positives, but still find the bad type thing. It's good, maybe a good starting point, but it's not going to get the job done. And it's it's not to me it's not a long term solution. Yeah, Sigma is a single a single point in time, a single gate. Yeah, where you get to say good or bad. Yeah, I I, I, I totally I, I totally see what you mean. Uh, it's funny though because I, I, I from my perspective, I find Sigma is very imprecise, uh, and and that's that's the the perspective I come from because Sigma is sort of this this middle ground that we said where. We said, okay, we want to share the logic between people, but it's really, you know, different people have different logs formed in different ways. And so it's a, it's a pretty loosey goosey kind of format. Uh, and, and for like, for us, just, you know, me talking personally, like our, our engine is very, is very precise. Um, and so like you end up having to, you know, well, those guys, they build this rule and in their sim, they call this target process but by default the platform that emits them calls it target mm. and so now there's some rules that talk about targets some talk about target process and so it's still very uh, log based mm. but hundred uh, percent if I think that's the, the distinction you're talking about a like a point in time detection is to me the distinction between what an AV is and what I would say kind of we're doing in the rest of the industry right Okay. AV, you need it, you want it, like, you know, you want it to be super easy to cut a lot of the noise, that's good for that, but it's just, it's a complex problem, so it's going to need good solutions. 
Okay, so can I run this idea past you? I'm curious what you think, because this is the biggest problem that I see is that people are conflating numerous steps of the detection process into one. And that causes them to make statements like, um, you know, fault, like elimination of false positives is the ultimate goal of detection, which from my perspective is nonsensical because false positives don't even exist before the detection program is created. And so they're actually an output of the detection program. And so the goal of detection can't be to limit false positives. But uh, what I, I like to use, I probably have said this on the podcast before, but like my favorite example is the criminal justice system, right? Which is we have this, this criminal justice system and at least in the States, and I'm sure Canada is similar. Um, the, in order to convict somebody of a crime, there's a, stand, a legal standard called beyond a reasonable doubt, which means that like, generally it's supposed to mean that if there, if there is doubt, and if you're a lawyer, don't come after me for being slightly wrong, but if there's any doubt, then we don't convict, right? So it's better to err on the side of false, po- false negatives, right? So we'd rather have a false negative, which is a criminal who committed a crime and we don't convict them, than it is to have a false positive, which is an innocent person that's convicted of a crime. Right. So that's the ultimate standard. That's the far end of the of the funnel, you could say. But earlier in the funnel, when like a police officer first stops somebody on the street, they don't have a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. They have a reasonable suspicion standard, which is like an extraordinarily low standard. Right. It's like, do you look like you're doing something sketchy? I know there's like some case law about like profiling and things like that. But like, generally speaking, reasonable suspicion is very low is a very low standard. But then it escalates. Right. So like in order to search you. I have to have probable cause, right? And there's there's all like, and it escalates all the way up to beyond a reasonable doubt. And the idea here is, is that what you do is you create a system that has multiple gates, like you're saying, right? And those multiple gates have different standards that allow you to have more uncertainty and still pass on to the next step, right? So they like, because the idea is, is that when you're doing an enterprise-wide detection at the EDR level, right? you probably don't have very much information, let's be honest. Like you, you, from a technical sense, you don't have lots of context about what's happening that helps you to be more certain. And so what you do is you say, I'm going to cast kind of a, like, kind of a wider net mm-hmm. and then I'm going to pass it on and hopefully I have some follow-up processes that allow me to gather additional information that maybe, what, maybe that's through correlation. Maybe there's some thir- sort of third-party integration. Maybe there's a SOAR platform that could go out and grab that file and then put it in a malware you know sandbox and reverse it and pull some information out maybe there's there's all kinds of things that i could do and that's going to make me allow me to make a more informed decision and then i move on to the next step and maybe that involves some manual analysis but like by this point i'm you know i've reached the you know probable cause and so it's worth investing that manual resource into actually looking into it right and i i think like you said the problem is is that a lot of times and i i don't think this is actually a sigma problem i think this is a industry problem that sigma is reflecting right so yeah um but what sigma what sigma's doing and this again this is representative is because we don't have the technology of that process what we do is we smash all those into one and we have a beyond a reasonable doubt standard from the get-go as opposed to allowing ourselves a little bit of grace to say hey i'm not sure about this but what i'm going to do is it's it's interesting enough that i'm i'm willing to invest a little bit more resources because the way that it is now it's either you invest all the resources or you, or you invest no resources. And what we need yeah. to do is have a gradual pipeline that allows us to say, this is worth just a little bit more resource. And then, okay, now I'm a little bit more certain of spending some more resources. And so you allow yourself the ability to increase resources as your certainty goes up. But if you have to have full certainty at the very beginning, you're screwed. You got no chance. 
And it sounds like, I mean, one of the goals of Lima Charlie is to basically provide that entire pipeline so that you can potentially do something. I don't know if that's how you how you thought about it, but that like sounds like that's at least plausible. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's it's not so much that we provide the pipeline as much as Mm. we we make it really easy for you to come up with that pipeline however you you feel is is needed right so uh like what what you're kind of describing in like in in the lima charlie world roughly speaking right what this would be is you have a bunch of uh you know detection rules like think sigma very very similar slightly different language Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.